Well, as we continue our uh, series in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, want to do review with you as we've been doing, review some of the questions that we've already done. And uh, we're still at a point where we can do all of them. When we get to question 96, we won't still be able to do that. But uh, we can review them all now. So uh, let's, let's go through them, reciting the answers in unison. Question 1. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Question 2. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Question 3. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question 4. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question 5. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. And then uh, before we do question 6, this is the one we're doing this week. I want to define one of the terms that's used there. It speaks about the Godhead. So what does Godhead mean? It's an old word that means divine nature. So, for example, if you read in the King James Bible, the old King James, in uh, Romans 1, it talks about God's eternal power and Godhead. And if you read in a more modern version, it says His eternal power and divine nature. So Godhead equals divine nature. And uh, it's important to understand that it's similar to the word uh, childhood, where it refers to someone that is in the state of a child, childhood. God is his Godhead. It's head instead of hood, but it's equivalent to, this, to the same thing. So you can think of, um, you understand that when we talk about uh, in, this, in question six. Okay, so let's uh, now go to that question six. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, last week with question five, we looked at the fact that there is only one God. We went to 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6 in particular, where we're told that though there are many who are called God, that we as Christians know that there is only one God. When we speak of three persons, it's not that there are three gods with different agendas and different abilities, but that we have three persons who are one God, one in essence. That God is one in a foundational, or that God is one is foundational to the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a foundational component to the doctrine of Trinity. 
there are really three principal truths that are part of the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, and these three truths are these. Number one, it's really fairly simple. That there are three distinct persons. Okay, they're not the same person. There's three different persons. And number two, that the three persons are one God. And number three, that all three persons are fully God. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. So there's a helpful diagram that if you have the handout, you can look at. Um, it shows all the relationships in the Trinity. It has three persons at the points of a triangle. So the one I have here has the Father at the top, and then Jesus Christ at the bottom uh, of one, one point of the triangle, and the Holy Spirit at the other. And then in the middle of the triangle is the word God, and each of the three persons is connected to the word God by the word is, showing that each one is God. Okay, each of the three persons are one God. So the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus Christ the Son is God, and the Father is God. But then between the three persons and the outside edges of the triangle, you have that uh, is, the word is not. So the Father is not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Now, this, is, this clarifies what the doctrine of the Trinity is. It's admittedly a difficult thing for us to understand. We believe it not because we can fully understand it and figure it out, but because it's clearly revealed in God's Word. Notice when you go through the Word, you find all those things to be true. That, you know, again, there, there, there's one God, there's three persons that are different from each other, and uh, that each person is fully God. So the illustrations that are sometimes used tend to break down at various points. For example, some people will say that God is like water. You've probably heard that before, that in, in different forms. Like there's um, liquid, and then there's ice, and there's vapor, steam that comes out of the kettle or that kind of thing. But that's misleading because it sounds like God just changes form, that he appears in different modes, and that's not right. In fact, that's a heresy it's called modalism or Sabellianism because Sabellius was the guy that, uh, that propagated it. But this is really saying that God is not three persons, but he just appears as different persons or he has different roles, really, is how it is. So it would be like saying that I'm different people because I'm a father and I'm a son, and I'm a brother, and I'm all these different, I'm a pastor, I'm these different things, but I'm not different people. That's not different people. And so that illustration really breaks down uh, and really promotes a heresy. And sadly, a lot of Christians actually understand the Trinity that way as modalism. And that's not right. You know, the persons are three distinct persons. The best illustration is the one that God uses in revealing this doctrine to us, straight on the face of it, that that of the family, where you have God the Father and God the Son who is begotten of him. 
and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and Son part of the formula, we can see how that both have the same divine nature, just as human fathers and sons have the same human nature. And we can see how the Father is not superior in essence, but yet has authority in the economy and the household of the Trinity. However, even this illustration breaks down in that with us humans, we have more differences, as it were. In other words, there's a unity of one God that is different than the unity that we have as one human race. With, uh, with us, one person is older than another, one is younger, one is more athletic, one is more intelligent than another, one is stronger, they have different experiences, they have different opinions. But with God, who is absolutely perfect and also infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, there's not that kind of variation between the three persons. The three are distinct persons, but not in the way that we are distinct or different as human beings. They're distinct persons, yet one God. And again, this goes beyond what we can totally take into our mind because we're talking about God. We're not talking about something smaller than us. We're talking about something that is far greater than us. We're like little ants trying to understand what people are doing walking around. We can't, we can't put it all together. So we believe this, again, not because we can fully comprehend it, but because these truths are set forth in Scripture and we dare not set aside any of these three things that I've mentioned to you that make up the doctrine of, of the Trinity. So in looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, I want to do two things today. First, I want to show you what I just said, that the doctrine of the Trinity is what the Bible teaches, that all these three components are there. Very important because there are many who deny this teaching, and when they do, it not only distorts the truth about God and dishonors God for us to think of Him in a way that He's not revealed, but it also affects what we believe about salvation and even how we worship God. And that's the second thing that I want to look at today, is after establishing that the Trinity is taught in Scripture, I then want to show you how all three persons are involved in our salvation, our walk with God, and our worship. Like, how does it work out in life with the three persons? So let's begin with the first point. The doctrine of the Trinity is what the Bible teaches. The doctrine, again, that There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. You see there the three components again, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Second, that these three are one God. Third, that they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. All three persons are God fully. Now, you can see all three of these components of the Trinity in the formula for baptism that Jesus gives us at the end of his ministry, after he's raised from the dead, before he ascends into heaven, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Of course, this is where he met with his disciples before he did ascend into heaven and gave them this orders for the church giving them uh, orders for the great work that they're to do until his return and making new disciples, followers of Jesus. And he says, Matthew 28, 18, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That we are to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is familiar to us as Christians. We've heard that used in baptisms. That there are three persons is clear in this formula because each person is named. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That they are one God is shown because it says that we are to baptize in the name. It's singular. It doesn't say baptize in the names, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is one God in three persons. And that the three are all equally God is suggested by the fact that they are put next to each other in the baptismal formula. How inappropriate it would be, for example, to say that we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Apostle Paul, or the name of the Father and the Spirit and Peter, or something like that. They, Paul and Peter don't belong in something like that. They're not equals. So, uh, or, or Moses or whoever, you don't stick someone else in there. It's only appropriate for those who are truly God that we're baptized in, in the name of the three persons. So we can pretty well deduce the doctrine of the Trinity from the baptismal formula. But for something this difficult to understand, we need more to look at from Scripture because it doesn't you know, completely close the case. So let's look at how each of the principal points that make up the doctrine of the Trinity is taught in the Bible. So first of all, the point that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. They're all named... But it could, sim- it could simply be that there are just three different ways of referring to God. Like I mentioned before, the modalism idea. You know, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor, I'm a resident, I'm, but I'm one person. It would seem a little odd to use Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they're used in the bad f- baptismal formula that way. But we need to be sure that they're distinct persons. So what does the Scripture say? Well, the best place to see clearly three different persons that they're not the same person, is in John 14, which we read earlier today, where Jesus talks about them in relationship to each other. Definitely not as the same person. If you look there, look, at, look especially at John 14, 24 through 26. If you look at this passage, you can see clearly that there are three different persons that Jesus speaks of. In John 14, 24, Jesus speaks of the Father who sent me. See that in verse 24? If the Father sent him, he and the Father are two different persons. If I come and visit you, I don't tell you that the pastor sent me. Say, oh, the pastor sent me to come and visit you. I am the pastor. I wouldn't say that. I'm a different, it sounds like there are two people. But I might tell you that the elders sent me to come and, and, and see you. I'd be talking about different people then. But since I'm the pastor, you see, it would it'd be silly for me to say that, uh, come to see you and say, I, I sent me to you. 
in, in John 14, 25 through 26, Jesus speaks of the third person of the Trinity as well, the Holy Spirit, who will come after he goes away. So he's saying, I'm going to be gone and he's going to come. Again, you don't say that about yourself if you're the one coming back. If Jesus and the Holy Spirit were the same person, how could Jesus say that he was going to the Father and that the Holy Spirit would come in his place? Take a look at what it says, 1425, John 1425. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So you see three persons. Jesus goes away. He's going to leave the disciples. The Holy Spirit is going to come to the disciples. And the Father is the one who's going to send the Holy Spirit to the disciples. So there are clearly three distinct, different persons. So we need to believe that. That's what it says. Secondly, we need to see that there's only one God. Now, we already did that last week. Though you remember the passages from last week. We want to look at Scripture to show, show this is all from Scripture. The Old Testament passage we looked at was Deuteronomy 6.4. We had that for our reading beforehand. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to talk about how we're to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength because we're not divided up like the pagans are with different gods. We have one God to love. It's like the first commandment that says, have no other gods before me. There's one God. And then the New Testament passage we looked at last week that shows us that there is one God is 1 Corinthians 8, 4. It says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And as we saw last week, Paul goes on to explain that there are many different lords and many that are called God, but that there is, in fact, only one. Okay, so that's the second thing, that uh, there's one God, three persons, one God. And now we need to see, thirdly, that each of the three persons is just as fully God as the other two. Again, no one could look at these scriptures and say that these things are not so. The fact that you have a hard time fitting these things together... Well, that's, that's your problem, <laughs> our problem, that we, we can't fit them together so well. It doesn't mean they're not true. We see What we see plainly taught in Scripture is what we need to believe. So thirdly, we need to see that each of the three persons is, is just as fully God as the other two. I don't suppose there's any question that God the Father is God, but we need to see how the Scripture supports the fact that the Son is God and that the Holy Spirit is just as fully God as the Father and the Son is just fully God as the Father. So with Jesus, there are a number of ways to show this. One of the main ways is that he is spoken of as God's equal, as we saw in the baptismal formula. And this occurs over and over in Paul's epistles, for example. They often have the words like this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost all of his epistles will start out in words similar to that. By putting their names together as those who bring grace and peace to us, Paul is showing that they are equals. In the apostolic benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, all three of the persons of the Godhead are mentioned as equals. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, this is the benediction we'll be using today too, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now, I should mention here that sometimes when God is used, it refers to the Father because he's the one who is uh, the head in the Trinity. And so he's sometimes mentioned as the um, is just referred to as God. But here he is with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit. We can also see that Jesus is God in Scripture because he has given titles that are only fitting for God. One title that's only fitting for God is the title God. Okay, In Hebrews 1.8, it tells of the Father speaking to the Son and saying, Hebrews 1.8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Not only is he called God there, but he's also said to reign forever and ever. There are also places where he is called, and this is really striking, Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh is God's divine name that means I am. And that speaks of him, therefore, as self-existing. It's a name that is exclusively, that exclusively belongs to God, the cause of all things, the self-existing God, the one who exists apart from all creation. Yet, you see, the apostles quote passages from the Old Testament that use this name, Yahweh, to refer to Jesus. For example, the apostle John says in John 12, 41, that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus when he had the vision in Isaiah 6. John says that it was Jesus that Isaiah saw, the Son. And who is it that Isaiah saw? It was the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. It was the eternal, self-existing God. So that name is used of Jesus. I could show you other passages that are similar to that where Yahweh is used. We can see that he is God also from looking at his works that are works that only God can do. Creating the world is a divine act, and it is ascribed to the Son. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And then it makes it very clear, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He even holds it all together. Judging all men is a divine act, and it is ascribed to him also. In John 5, Jesus actually speaks of the fact that the Father has appointed him to judge as evidence that he is equal to the Father and therefore should be honored just as the Father is honored. John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Forgiving sins is a divine act, and it is ascribed to Him, again, with an emphasis that only God can forgive sins. In Luke 5, we're told how Jesus healed a paralytic. That man that was let down uh, through the roof, you know, with the, uh, his friends let him down through the roof because they couldn't get to Jesus in the crowd. And it says, Luke five twenty. 
When he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said to the, to the man, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Why is, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 it didn't mean that. It says rather, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So he doesn't deny, but he actually enhances the fact that he has authority to forgive sins. So he deliberately speaks that way to prove that he has divine authority. Think also of the fact that he repeatedly makes the claim that only those who believe in him will be saved. All through. Can you imagine some man saying that? Hey, if you believe in me and you deny yourself and you follow me, then you're going to be saved. That's ridiculous. Only the Son of God could make a claim like that. We could speak of many other divine things he does, uh, calming the storm, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. And here's the key. He does them all not in the name of another, but in his own name. Yeah, you say the apostles could do some things like that. The prophets could do something, but they did it in the name of God. Jesus does it in his own name. We can also see that he is God from the things that are said about his nature. We're told that he's eternal. Not only does Jesus constantly speak of being sent from heaven, which shows that he was here before he was born, that he was in the form of God before he came here, but he also tells us that he was with the Father from before the creation of the world. And in Micah 5.2, Micah declares that the one who will come forth from Bethlehem to be the ruler is the one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Only God is from everlasting. We're told that he is everywhere present. Matthew 28 again, which we read earlier, Jesus promises his disciples that he will be with them always, even to the end of the age. And his disciples take comfort that he is always present with them. With the Holy Spirit, similar evidence is given showing that he is God. First, like Jesus, simply that he's called God. When Peter charges Ananias and Sapphira of lying against the Holy Spirit or, or to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, he says to them, you have not lied to man, but to God. We're told in the Bible that the Spirit has power to change men's hearts, something that only God can do. When Jesus speaks of the new birth in John 3, he refers to it as being born of the Holy Spirit. It's also being born of God. It's a divine work. We're also told that the Holy Spirit is eternal and everywhere present. Psalm 139 asks the question, Psalm 139.7, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So this is true of everyone all the time that God's spirit is never absent. He is always present. We can never get out of his sight. Only God has such a presence and such knowledge that the psalmist says is too wonderful for me. I can't comprehend it. 
Okay, so you see then uh, from Scripture, doctrine of Trinity set forth in Scripture. Again, you tell people if they ask you about it, it's just, it's just three things that the Bible teaches us. That there's one God, that there are three distinct persons who are called God, and that each of these three persons is fully God. Okay, now, now having seen that, let's look at what it means for us that God is a trinity, how all three persons are involved in our salvation, in our walk, and in our worship. First, we need to understand that all three persons of the Godhead took part in saving us. The Father is the one who graciously planned all that was to be done. We are constantly told how in His love, He is the one who chose us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, just as He chose us. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. The Father is described as the one who sent His only Son to save us. God God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3, 16. All that is done for our salvation was done by the Father's design. Jesus tells us that He came to do the Father's will. That He will save all of those that the Father has given Him to be saved. He told His disciples that it was the Father's good pleasure to give them the kingdom in Luke 12, 32. So you see the Father is, um, is, is very much involved. Sometimes people look at the son coming, and he's the one that wanted to save us, and he kind of twists the father's arm and talks him to save. No, no, it was the father that initiated the whole thing. The son is the one who carried out the work. So now let's look at him, second person of the Trinity. The father, as we just saw, sent him to save us. And indeed, the son came to do the saving. He says that he always does what the father tells him to do. John 8, 29. And so, when he was instructed to do so, he came in our flesh, and by his obedience, he perfectly fulfilled God's law. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, Hebrews seven twenty six. and the Father declared that he was pleased with him. The Father declared this at his baptism, Matthew three seventeen, and again at his transfiguration, Matthew seventeen five. Such righteousness was necessary for us humans to be accepted, for God cannot accept sin. So Jesus, our representative, had to be without sin. God accepts us because the one who represents us is without sin. And not only that, but he also gave his life a ransom for us. We're told that in Mark ten forty-five, He became sin for us as if he had done the wrong that we did. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all, so that by His stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53.6 In Him we have the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7 He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 It wasn't the Holy Spirit who is the Lamb of God, It wasn't the Father who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was God the Son who did these things. There would be no salvation for us but for God's Son. The Holy Spirit 
is also indispensable to our salvation. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the work to us. He connects us to Christ and his saving work. The Father sends the Spirit and Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit so that we can come to God, so that we will come to God. We would never come to Christ for salvation, which we must do to be saved, unless the Spirit changes us, unless He changes us. Jesus says that we must be born again of the Spirit to see His kingdom in John 3. The Spirit opens our eyes to see how much we need Christ to save us, to give us a true sense of our sins and a true sense of what Christ has done and how His death for us is sufficient for us and satisfies for our sin. He's suffering and death. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13, we looked at last week. Natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, but the Spirit has revealed them to us. And he changes us from those who reject God in his ways into those who love God in his ways. This is called in Titus, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us abundantly. Titus 3, 5 and 6. So you see that we could not be saved if any one of the persons in the Trinity was not involved. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in saving us. The Father planned it, the Son carried out the plan, and the Holy Spirit applies it to us as individuals. It's also true that all the persons in the Godhead take their part in our walk with God. That's the next thing we want to look at. We live before the Father, and He orders all things for our growth and our sanctification. Jesus speaks very much about bringing us to the Father and reconciling us to the Father. No one, He says, can come to the Father, but through Him, John 14, 6, He says that eternal life is about knowing the Father, Jesus Christ, whom He sent, The Father is shown to be the one who works all things together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And that good purpose that He works toward is that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans 8, 28 through 29. So nothing can separate us from His love. So as we go on in the Christian life, it is the Father who is shaping what is happening to us, bringing things into our lives, working in us, so that we are growing and walking and communing with Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is our example of walking with God and the one that we follow, okay, and whose word we obey. When Jesus calls us, He says, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. He is the living word that we receive, both the gospel and the law, It is His commandments that we are to obey. It's His work of salvation that we are to rely upon for our salvation and for our ongoing comfort and strength as we go on. He is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. By coming to Him, we receive life more abundantly. We're able to live for God by our walking with Jesus Christ. When we hear preaching, Scripture says that we hear His voice. Paul tells the Ephesians, you have heard him. He doesn't say you've heard about him. 
but literally you have heard him so that he's the one that speaks to us through the ministry of the word. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to live the new life, to walk the new walk. God's promise in the new covenant is Hebrews 8:10. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36 attributes that work to God, the Spirit. This is done by the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. The fruit that he gives us is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That is the Spirit's work to produce that fruit in you as you walk with God. So you get the idea. We're, we're before the Father, walking before him. And we have Jesus Christ, who we follow, who leads us. And we receive counsel, commandments, and things like that from him. And then the Holy Spirit is the enabler that makes us able to follow and obey those commandments as we walk with God. So we live before the Father by following Jesus, trusting in him as the Spirit enables us. This plays out in our worship of God very much. And that's the next thing that I want you to see as we consider this. That all three persons of the Godhead take their place in our worship. The Father receives, the Son leads us in our worship, and the Holy Spirit vivifies or gives life to our worship. The Father, then, is the one to whom our worship is primarily directed. Primarily directed. Jesus tells us that the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. We come before the Father when we worship. We address the Father especially. We should think of Him receiving us and welcoming us when we come before His throne of grace, calling on His name. The Son is primarily the one who leads us in our worship, who brings us into the Father's presence. He takes us by the hand, as it were, and brings us before the Father. He is our mediator stands between us and God and brings us into God's presence. He is the Lord, our Savior, who calls us together in the worshiping assembly. He is among us, leading the way in the midst of the assembly. Hebrews 2.12 says of him, I will declare your name. This is him speaking. It's quoting from Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly... I will sing praise to you. So it's his call that we obey when we come to worship God, when we assemble together. He declares God's name to his brethren. He's the one that has given us the word that we preach and that has appointed that the word be preached. And as our king, he sings praise in the midst of the assembly with us leading us in praise and thanksgiving. What does the Holy Spirit do? I hope you know now. The Holy Spirit is the one who works in our hearts to give us a heart for worship. He animates, or as I said before, vivifies our worship. He puts life in it. We're moved to worship when God's goodness and glory and saving work is declared to us only when God the Spirit is at work in us. 
You could have all the right things said and you could have all the right things presented by Christ and all this. But without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't really respond to that with faith. What God has done must be revealed to us by the Spirit. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our understanding that we might see the height and depth and breadth of what Christ has done for us. Consider a couple of examples of how the triune God is involved in our worship. A couple of things specifically. Receiving the word. The Father has spoken by His Son. Hebrews 1-2. The Son, then, is the message. John 1.14, the fulfillment of the law and the gospel itself is the Son come in our flesh. He is the wisdom of God, and He is the salvation of God. Him we preach. Okay, so the word that we preach is Christ. Colossians 1.28, so receiving the word, we're receiving Christ the word. Father sent Him, we receive it. And then the Holy Spirit makes us receptive of the word in our hearts. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 In praying, we address the Father. Matthew 6.9, our Father, which art in heaven. The Son leads us and intercedes for us. We pray only in His name. So we come in the merit of His sacrifice. When we're praying, it's, it's as if Jesus is beside us, so to speak, or, or leading us. The Father is on His throne and we're coming in prayer with Jesus interceding, praying with us as one of us, as our mediator, and we're lifting up our requests to God in His name. And the Holy Spirit gives us groanings that cannot be uttered. He burdens us for the things that we need. He gives us a yearning for them because we don't know how to pray as we ought. We aren't really moved to pray. We don't desire the things we need to desire unless the Holy Spirit works. So Romans 8.26 teaches of the work of the Holy Spirit in our prayer. So the Spirit, when we come to worship and when we come to pray, is in our hearts giving us the burden of prayer, spirit of prayer and supplication before God. So we're, we're with the Son, praying to the Father, the Holy Spirit working in us as we come. You can say the same thing with, with singing. And then the sacraments. We come before the Father to be cleansed and strengthened. Christ is the one who is presented to us in the sacrament. Baptism, who, He baptizes. He's the one that baptizes us and He's the one that feeds us in the Lord's Supper and the basis of His work. And then the Holy Spirit, what does He do? He does the actual cleansing and nourishing of us from within. So again, if you had any of the three persons, you wouldn't have worship. So you see how all three persons are involved in our relationship with God. All three are involved in saving us. All three are involved in our walk with God. All three are involved in our worship. And yet all three are one God. Let us rejoice that we have such a God who is one God, yet three persons. And let us joyfully and humbly confess that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and that these three are one true eternal God. Please stand and let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you have engaged with us in our present state, Lord, in our state really forever as human beings that, that we have the Son who has now become one of us and who does all things for our salvation, the Lamb of God and the one who went to the cross for us, the one who leads us along, the one that we follow, the one that we imitate, the one who is your image and that we seek to be conformed to. And we praise you, O Lord, that you, Father, are the one who receives our worship and who provided all these things for us, who sent these things, uh, sent Christ and sent the Spirit. And then, Lord, we praise you also for the Holy Spirit who, who works in us, and who gives us life within so that we're able to truly respond to you and your word, to believe and to walk with you, to have strength to do so. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find great encouragement in the communion that we have with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, Lord, you would help us to delight in that fellowship and that we would benefit from the blessings that that each person in the Trinity brings to us. And, Father, they're all blessings that all three persons bring to us. And we praise you, Lord, that in different ways that each person is involved. Lord, help us to hold to this precious truth and to be able to help others to see it and understand it. And we pray that your church would go forward. We know that whenever that one of these truths is, is set aside, that's taught in Scripture, one of these doctrines involving the Trinity, that a church quickly goes astray. They become moralistic. They don't have, if the Son is not God, they have no God to save them. No divine sacrifice that is the person who is the Son of God. And there's really no salvation that way. And it becomes just them saving themselves somehow. Or when the Spirit is denied, we do not see, Lord, that, that we can't come to you unless you change us, unless we're born again. We can have Christ's example and call all day. But unless the Spirit works in us, Lord, we will, we'd never come to you. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would help us, Lord, to be able to uphold these truths that the church believes and that are taught in the Holy Scriptures. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's sing Psalm 45 in the back. Spirit before with that song. I didn't mention uh, one of the principal ways the Spirit is seen, and that is with... Um, him being anointed, anointing with oil, that represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is called Christ because he was the anointed one, anointed with God the Spirit. So you have all three persons that are represented there in that psalm. We'll now receive the blessing of God from the three persons who are one true eternal God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.